Uh, well, this week, our family got to the place any of us get if you're committed to driving old cars as long as you can, uh, which is our van, which is uh, it's 13, 14 years old. It's about to hit 200,000 miles. Wouldn't start, which was great timing with my wife being nine months pregnant, a baby due imminently. Uh, we're about to be a family of six, and now the only vehicle that can transport all of us will not start, which was great for my wife's psyche, uh, but I digress. That's another, that's another sermon. Uh, the ignition was broken, so we get it fixed, we get it started, and then the next day, uh, it won't start again. It's cranking, but it's not starting, and, and so I go to YouTube thinking, you know, okay, I'll be a mechanic, what's wrong? And I, I you know, go through the list of, of what to check, and like, you know, number three or four on the list is like, it's, it's over, right? The van is, it's done, it's dead. Uh, and I, so I, I, but I have it towed to our mechanic, wrestle, like wondering, like, is this, is this it for our, our van? Or more like the question is, uh, is this worth it? How much is my van worth? And that's like, that's a question we all have to wrestle with, with uh, our cars. And it's hard to know when it's time to let it go, when it's time, I'm going to fix it one more time and keep it, keep it rolling. Um, and yet as hard as that question is, there's, there's another question that's harder to reflect on, which is what we're going to reflect on this morning, which is, is how much is a human being worth? Uh, how much are, are you worth? How much am I worth? And that's probably the most important question that a human society will answer, and every human society has an answer to that question of what a human being is worth. And, and every human society throughout history has given an answer to that question that's very below what Genesis 1 would give as an answer to that question. And so my hope this morning is this, that you and I, uh, in a society that does not value human life to the extent that Genesis 1 does, my hope is that all of us, We'll take Genesis 1 as our answer to the question, how much is a human being worth? And to begin to answer that question, we have to think, you know, where we've been the last couple of, of weeks. And, and we're in Genesis, we're going to be in Genesis for a while, um, especially in the first three chapters of Genesis, kind of through, uh, uh, through Easter. And, and week one, we, really, the sermon was, was, listen, there's one creator God who makes everything, um, from nothing. There's one God who makes everything that you see around us. Uh, week two, last week, uh, we, we just said, listen, there's, there's one God who made everything. Everything that he made is good. Um, everything that he made is, is his own. And if you, if you open your eyes to the world around you, all around is evidence of this good creator God who, who made us and who wants to know us. And we talked about last week, there, there's this cadence kind of all through Genesis 1, which is, is, and God said, and God saw that it was good, and God said, and God saw that it was good, and God said, and God saw that it was good. And there's this rhythm to Genesis 1, and there's another rhythm in Genesis 1, which is why I, I, I've always seen Genesis 1 in the Hebrew as a very poetic picture of what is happening in creation. And so the other rhythm that you'll, you'll find in Genesis 1, if you read through the whole chapter, is when God's making things, there's this intentional start to each day. And so uh, in verse 6, And God said, let there be, God, uh, verse 9, And God said, let the waters, verse 11, And God said, let the earth. Then uh, verse 14, And God said, let there be, God said, let the waters, God said, let the earth. But then in verse 26, that refrain breaks very intentionally. 
And in verse 26, we read, And God said, Let us make. That's to be disruptive to the flow. It's meant to, uh, to make you sit up in your seat a little bit. Almost like what, what, what's happening is if, if a speaker in the middle of a presentation sort of stopped what they were saying, stopped reading from a manuscript, got down off the podium and said, I just want to talk to you directly um, for a minute. That's how disruptive verse 26 is. It's meant to disrupt us. It's, it's meant to make a shift in our, our chairs and ask, well, what's something new is about to happen. Right? The refrain is stopping. The rhythm is, is changing. What's, what's happening is new. What is going to happen? And that's when God says, let us make humanity in our own image and likeness. And so what God is doing with human beings, it's different than the rest of creation in two ways. And it's, it's these two words. God is going to make something that images him and is after his own likeness. And nothing that he's made up until this point was in his own image and in his own likeness. So if, if we want to understand the newness of what's happening here, the newness of human life, we have to understand what it means that we're made as human beings in the likeness and in the image of, of God. And so the, the word likeness, it's the Hebrew word damut, and, and, and what it is, it means a model or a pattern. So later in the Hebrew scriptures, this word is used uh, like, a, like something is made off of a blueprint, right? So there, there's an altar that's created, and there's a, a demut or a likeness of that, that that the altar is patterned after. And so God, in a sense, is like a blueprint for what you and I are. Right? Like the fundamentals of who we are made or how we are made is God. He's the blueprint for us. The other Hebrew word, image, uh, is used far more frequently in the, in the Hebrew Bible, and, and it's a word that had a rich meaning in its own culture. And most of, of the cultures in that day believed that uh, the, the, God, the king of like a, a given nation was the image, uh, the Hebrew word is Salem, was the image of the God, right? So there was one image that represented the gods to the rest of the nation. The king was an image of of the God. And, and this is, word is also used throughout the Hebrew scriptures to, to, to describe idols or images, right? So the primary command in the Bible is do not make an image or an idol after God, um, right? Don't make a little statue that represents God. Don't make an image or a salem, the same Hebrew word um, that, is, that is here. And, and that's how the word is primarily used through the Hebrew scriptures, actually, is, is of an idol, an image that's, that's meant to like, be a statue of God. And, and there's sort of two important things here. One is, is that um, the Bible is, is so against creating a salem, an idol, an image of the, the true God, the, the God of Genesis 1, because we don't have to. Like, we don't need a little statue to represent God. We don't need a painting to depict God. If you want, a, like if you want an idol of God, the living God, like, look around you. Human beings. That's why, like, that's why the Bible is so, I mean, among other reasons, but one of the primary reasons the Bible is so against any kind of idol representing God is because we already have them. They're human beings. We are the image. We are the idols of God. And the second thing that's really interesting from Genesis 1 and us being in the image of God is that it's not just the king who is the salim of God or the image of God. It's, it's everyone. right? And, and even intentionally so, Genesis 1 makes the point, male and female he created them. Men image God. So, too, so do females equally image God the living God, the rich image God, the poor image God. It's not just one representative who is the image of God. It's all human beings who are meant to, through the way we live, represent the reign and rule and truth of God because we are his image. We are his idols. 
Now, this is cheesy, and I normally, like, I hate cheesy things, especially in church, but it's true. And when, so what Jesus is one is saying is, like, you and I, as, as human beings made in the image of God, we are royalty. Right? Like, Disney is right. Every one of us is a prince and a princess of God. Right? That's why Disney lands so well with, uh, you know, I'm about to have a little girl. It's like, I can't wait to get into the princess world. And that's a deeply biblical idea. We are made in the image of God. We are his royalty. Everyone is a king or queen, if this is true. And that's why C.S. Lewis, in his sermon, The Weight of Glory, he says this about the human beings around us. He says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal whores are everlasting splendors. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. The holiest thing you will ever encounter is, is another human being because it is the idol of God. Every human being you've ever encountered is not, it's not a mere mortal. It's not an ordinary person. It's, they are patterned after God. They are, they are imaged after God. And so to revisit our question, what is a human being worth? Well, what's God worth? And to answer that question, like only ultimately God knows what we are worth, what you are worth. And Genesis 1 makes very clear, you're his image, you're his likeness, you're his royalty. That's beautiful stuff, but let's, like, no, we really struggle to believe this. Both internally, like as we think about our own selves, our own like, identities, we struggle to believe this. And then as we go out and, and, and live around our neighbors, we struggle to believe this. But what makes Genesis 1 all the more stunning is, is you have to remember the context of when this was written. In Jewish and Christian history has maintained that Moses is the primary author of these narratives in that uh, as, as, as the Israelites, the Hebrew people, were leaving slavery in Egypt and moving into the promised land and forming their own nation, these narratives were created, um, revealed to them by God to say, this is what you're going to be as a nation. These are the foundational documents. When you think about as a society, what is a human being worth? God is going to reveal that to you through Genesis 1. And what's, what's, what we have to remember about this is they're leaving a society in Egypt where only Pharaoh was the representative of God. Only Pharaoh was the slim of God. And the Hebrew people were, were slaves to be exploited for the Egyptian people who were, were, were superior um, to the, the Hebrew people. That, the, the whole Egyptian society was built on the idea the Egyptians are superior to the Hebrews, which is why they can justify treating the Hebrew people so terribly. And so to a culture that, or to, to the Hebrew people who were coming out of this culture, uh, Moses speaks these God-revealed words that are frankly confrontational to every human society, including Ours that would say there are some human beings that are made in the image of God and there are some human beings that are not. The idea that every human being is made in the image of God is not an idea you find anywhere but Genesis 1. You don't find it in ancient Egyptian culture. You don't find it in ancient Western culture. Aristotle believed and taught that there were some human beings born to rule and some human beings born to be slaves. That is not the foundation of our own society, the United States. 
our own culture was, was born and built on the idea, even though the Declaration of Independence spoke of the equal worth of all human beings, depending on your race, that didn't apply to you. And what Moses says is, we as the people of God, our foundational idea of the worth of human beings is that every human being is royalty. Regardless of status, regardless of background, regardless of race. There's nothing like this idea in the whole world, which is why very few human, human beings, and probably none of us in this room, especially as we think internally, we struggle to believe this. We have no idea what we're worth. And throughout history, human beings uh, have missed our staggering dignity and worth and value. And I want to think that out in two ways. First, as we think about our own selves, like our own identities, and then our neighbors. The many are beginning to, to notice in, in our current culture uh, like serious increases in anxiety and depression and, and suicide rates. And I want to be, going to be clear, there's, there's like, like true mental health issues, right, that, that need to be like clinically diagnosed. And then there, there's just this sort of malaise, this, this increasing sense of sadness in our culture, which sociolog sociologists are beginning to notice. We're more depressed, we're more anxious, more likely to take our lives, even though our quality of life has, has increased dramatically. And so as we think out this question, what is a human being worth? What am I worth? What are you worth? Our culture is like increasingly struggling to answer that with Genesis 1 type of dignity or value. That we often tie our, our self-worth, our value, to what we produce, to our abilities, to how our kids turn out, to how other people perceive our worth. We tie our value to how other people feel about us or to how we feel about our, ourselves. That's why one, uh, one pretty big change I've made in, in, my, recent, uh, in my life recently is I've, I've traded my iPhone in for, for this, which is a, a calculator that also makes phone calls and texts. Um, I went to a, a dumb phone because uh, what study after study has shown is that increased presence through the internet, through Twitter, social media, all those things, uh, directly correlates to increased anxiety, increased depression, because we're building our identities on comparing ourselves. We look at the vacations of others. We look at the children of others. We look at the lives of others, and we begin to think, you know, they're, they're, they're here, I'm here. And so their worth is here, my worth is, is here, and I just found in my own heart, like my identity is not being set by Genesis 1 it's to, to that rhythm, but instead to, to the comparison of the people um, around me. God's voice was not most prominent in my own life. And I, listen, I don't know if that'll work, I don't know if it'll make any difference, there's lots of ways to, to struggle with an identity, but, but what makes Genesis 1 so unique uh, compared to all other creation narratives that we have is that that it's not just that God creates us in, in his own image and likeness, but it's like everything of the pattern of Genesis 1 is when we get to the creation of human beings, God just says, stop. Like, I want to do something different. I want to make something like me. Right? I want to, like, the only other place in the Hebrew Bible where the words image and likeness appear is to depict a, a parent to a child relationship. Like, God's so, when he thinks about human beings, we're not just matter he creates or living beings. Like, he wants to think of us as his own children. And think of it like this, that my, uh, you know, we've got three kids now, we're about to have our fourth, and if you, uh, if you were to come to my house, my kids follow my wife around everywhere. 
right? So if she leaves the bedroom to the kitchen, they follow her to the kitchen. If she retreats from the kitchen, goes back to the bedroom, they make their way back to the bedroom. If she gets in the van to try to drive away, they run and try to jump in the van while she's driving up. Like, that's how it works. And, and it's, it shouldn't surprise uh, us that that's how it works because like physically like they were created like inside of her and, and from the beginning of their existence they were nurtured by her they were cared for by her when they needed something they were always were given um, um, it by them like the, the you know they're very much even when you look at them the image and likeness of of my wife and and unless you have that sort of relationship to God right like you know God's over here I'm going over there and you go God's over here I'm going over, I'm going to listen to him I'm going to I'm going to follow him around like a needy, um, you know, annoying child, right? Unless you think of God like that, you're, like your identity is never going to be tied to Genesis 1. But other things, what you produce, what you do, what you look like, what other people think or perceive of you. And that, like Genesis 1 starts by just saying, like God looking at us and saying, you are, you are my prince, you are my princess, and when I made this world, I stopped everything before I created human beings to highlight the unique dignity and value of worth we all carry. What is a human being worth? What are you worth? What am I worth? Well, what's God worth? We're his children, we're his image, we're his, his likeness. And, and here's the trouble, right? We struggle to believe that of ourselves, right? That 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 I am, I am a, a loved royalty child of God. And because we struggle to believe that of our own selves, when it comes to how we treat our neighbor, we, we begin to fall even further. That you cannot find a human culture or society that did not look at certain human beings within that culture or that society and say, they're here, but other people are here. And I want to talk about that this morning. I want to go into some depth on that this morning. Because just like Moses looked at, at the people of God and said, we will not define personhood the way Egyptians did. They're not slaves and, and kings. They're not those who image God and those who don't. We don't play that game as the people of God in Genesis 1. So every human society um, has been built on the idea that certain human beings are here and other human beings are, are here. But, but I, my prayer and my hope is that the church... As the people of God, as the heirs to Moses and the, the, the narratives and promises of Genesis, we will have the view of human life, human dignity, that the scriptures have, not our culture. And yet there's a tension here, and, and a good tension, in that um, you know, many non-Christians would even say, you don't get the idea of human rights or the rights of the individual, which Western society is built on, which is really good. You don't get that without Christianity. Right? You don't get that without image of God, Genesis 1 type stuff. And so even in our own society, there's this tension between the fact that the, sort of, you know, even our own declaration, right? Everyone uh, has equal rights before God, and yet we always, always just sort of redefine who the people are that fit that, that mold. So even in our own society, for every, every Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King Jr. who fought for every human being in the image of God, we had theologians like Charles Carroll, who lived in 1900, who wrote the book, the Negro Beast, and he said this in his writing, which shaped a lot of American Christianity. He said, if the white was created in the image of God, then the Negro was made after some other model. And we built a lot of our society on that assumption. And every human society throughout history has dehumanized certain people 
while holding others to be in the image of God. And it means, like, as Christians, we have this choice, and we have this choice today. It's no different. We either, like, land in Genesis 1 and become very uncomfortable in a culture that's always going to dehumanize certain parts of society, and we live into that weirdness and that discomfort and the fact we don't really have a home, or we, we trade in this, this beautiful theology of every human being made in the image of God to sit at the seat of power, to be cool, to have cultural influence. I, just want, I hope we don't do that. I hope you don't do that. As you engage politically, as you engage in our society, you'll recognize, one, this constant pressure to dehumanize certain people and always say as a church, we will not do that. The one of those pressure points uh, is, is our, the culture around abortion that we have in our society. And the earliest Christians addressed this. Abortion is nothing new from a, a cultural standpoint. Um, the earliest Christian writing we have that's, that's not our own scripture, the, the Didache, it was written about AD 95, which is uh, just a few years after probably Revelation in the Gospel of John was written. Um, the Didache was written by uh, church leaders, pastors, who were trying to sort of lay out the moral implications of the Gospels in Jesus' life for the early church. And so they begin to reflect um, in a part of the writing on, uh, on the second commandment, on loving your neighbor as yourself. And this is what's written. This is AD 95. Uh, the second commandment of the teaching. So there's two commandments in Christianity, right? That, above all else, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. So the second commandment is love neighbor as yourself. Uh, do not murder. Do not commit adultery. I'm skipping down. Do not practice. Do not go in for sorcery. Do not murder a child by abortion or kill a newborn infant. It's, uh, abortion was as popular in Roman first century culture as it is today in our own culture. And, and even worse than that, if a Roman had a child they wouldn't want, if, you, you know, if you're hoping for a boy and you got a girl instead, um, they would go and they would take the child and just leave it out in the wilderness, exposed to leave it to, um, to die. Um, but the earliest Christians believed Genesis 1, which meant they, they didn't practice abortion, they didn't support that. And even more so than that, the, the children who were left in the wilderness to die, Christians would go out into the wilderness and adopt those children um, into their own, own families, into their own um, homes. And because they believed those babies weren't, weren't just animals, weren't, uh, they, had, like, they, were, they were the idols of God, right? They were the image bearers of God. And you can't, like, you can't, to leave them out there to die is like, that's saying something about God, you can't do that. In our own society, in the name of financial freedom and wealth and uh, sexual freedom, um, regularly does the same thing to human life. And in 50 years, we have destroyed 40 million human lives, idols, images of, of God. And I understand, like, if that's hard to hear, I understand, I, ex- I fully expect there are people in this own room who have considered abortion or have had an abortion and I want to be really like I don't I don't speak from a place of moral superiority. I would I would classify my own life as like largely indifferent to the idea of abortion until my mid twenties. Um, that I I was just in stream with a culture that d- denies the human dignity of of human life until I was in my my mid twenties. And what changed for me um, was I had a good friend in college whose mom was a nurse in in Chicago and. Uh, wasn't a Christian and participated in abortions for much of her nursing career until one, um, one day when at, in the middle of an abortion, the, the child actually survived the procedure, came out of the womb alive. And 
she asked the doctor, what, what are we supposed to do with this, this child's alive? And uh, the doctor said, um, take it to a storage closet and leave it there. Right? No different than Roman first century culture. Right? This is an this is animal. Leave it to die. And sh- she took it to the storage closet and she held it until it, it finally passed. And shortly after that, she converted. She became a Christian. Her son studied to be a pastor. And as he told me this, this story, I just re- like I realized how broken and evil our society is. And people often will, you know, I, I've heard many times, you know, U.S. is, is we're a Christian nation, founded on Christian principles. And I, I just, I have a hard time with that. We are Roman first century culture just 2,000 years later with the same view of human life they had. And that's, that's created a, a major shift. And I want to be clear, I don't have any interest in being, you know, morally superior to people who struggle with this. Because I, be, I believe we live in a culture that's devalued human life, and so this just feels like a normal decision. And I understand if, if like, I'm rocking your world a little bit here and you just have a different framework. I probably had a different framework for much of my life. And why our energy as a, as a church is, devi- is devoted so much to advice and aid because we want to, like our, our brothers and sisters in Christ in the first century church, the children left in the wake of this culture of death. We want to care for those moms and those families who have not believed what our culture says about human dignity and, and life. And in the coming weeks, we're going to have ways for you to engage very intentionally with advice and aid to serve uh, that ministry and those families. And we'll talk about that more. It felt a little weird to do that this morning, um, but, but sort of lay out the theology um, lay out the, what Genesis 1 says and the implications for our own society. And then next week, I hope you come ready to join us, uh, join the work that's been 2,000 years old and running of the church of saying to a society that, that does not care for certain children, uh, we will. So that, that's one area. Our, our human society doesn't value life. And, and there, there's another. Um, I mean, there's several, but there's, there's more um, to that. And there's this moment in Jesus' life in particular that I've always had a hard time with. Jesus, he says some confrontational things from time to time. Um, but there's one thing he said that's always really troubled me because it just, it just seems over the top. Here it is. It's in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. He says, You've heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. It's that, it's that last line that's always gotten me. It's like if you call someone a fool, you, like you're on the path to hell. Which just feel like that feels a little intense, a little over the top. And yet Genesis 1 would make sense of that, right? If you, if you look at another image bearer of God and, and sneer at them and, and hold them in contempt or degrade them with your words, like, you're, like that's, that's God's image. That's God's idol. It's... Like you're doing that to God in a sense, which is why Jesus says, don't, like, don't, don't go there. Don't hold other human beings in contempt. Don't sneer at them. Don't speak of them in a way that's degrading, because if you do that, you are, that's, a, that's the highway to hell, for lack of a better term. And Genesis 1, to me, makes, makes sense of that, but here's the problem you and I have to think about, is, is, is we live in a culture where contempt and sneering and degrading human beings through the words we speak is, is celebrated. Um, it, and it's not just celebrated. I've heard Christians saying, this is how we need to start interacting with our own culture because it's, there's a fight out there, and in order to engage the fight, you have to, you have to speak that way or you have to speak in those, those terms. And 
I just, that troubles me as much as our, our, the culture of everything I just spoke to a few minutes ago. This really troubles me, that we live in a culture that's divided along political lines, along uh, racial lines, and there's disagreement everywhere and contempt for people with whom we disagree is everywhere. This is another reason why I got rid of this smartphone. Like I, I, I saw contempt in my own soul ri- rising up for people who, with whom I have disagreements with. And it's not that the disagreements are, are bad. We're going to have those, and we should. As I just said, like we view human life very differently as, as Christians than the rest of our culture will, and yet that should never spill over into contempt or sneering or degradation. And yet it's like we don't just disagree as a culture anymore. It's we have to, we have to go to contempt. Right, so it's not just that we might have different views of, of how we think about immigration as a culture and how we think about you know, immigrants coming into our country. It's that we have to, to speak um, of, of immigrants often in degrading, dehumanizing terms. And I've heard Christians like, defend that language. That we're just divided along racial lines as we have ever been. And, and many of our brothers and sisters in Christ who are minorities are saying, you know, there's still some problems within our society and the way things are, are, are running that leads to the trampling of the image of God on certain peoples within our culture. And I, actually, I don't think that's a particularly surprising, or it shouldn't be a surprising thing to us. And you even think about something of, of the issue of abortion, which I just spoke to. The vast majority of abortions in our culture are, are from minority people. And I think it's, like, it's worth asking, well, why are all the abortion clinics in minority neighborhoods? Uh, why have we made uh, abortion so accessible to minorities, in particular, as a society? Um, and that, of course, that is deep, deep history, deep roots. And, and that's like, just one more example, or one example, of how our society is, is structured in such a way that devalues certain human life over other human life. And what troubles me is not, we're going to disagree about this. It's okay. Like, we're going to disagree politically. We're going to disagree over the right way to proceed forward. I, I, like, the idea that I have any idea who you should vote for, I, I don't care. What does trouble me, though, is, is the contempt, the sneering, the, the idea that Christians now, we need to begin to interact differently with people um, in our current culture as if the fight has raised to a certain level. And we'll justify speech from political leaders or... Um, people who are, are thought, thought leaders in our own culture will justify de, you know, degrading, dehumanizing language because they might help us politically in, in other respects. That troubles me. Because I, I believe Genesis 1 is true. I believe when C.S. Lewis says, you have never met an ordinary person. There's no mere mortals. Every human being you encounter is the image, the idol of God. To, to sneer, to hold in contempt, to look down upon them is to move into territory that Jesus says himself puts you on the pathway to, to hell. Don't do that. So this is my only hope this morning. I, all I'm trying to advocate for is that we leave this place with Genesis 1 type belief in the dignity of every human being. And we just transgress some really heavy territory, right? So what's the, what's the relief? Like I said earlier, like the, the Hebrew term salim, it's, it's meant image, idol. Um, and what kings would do is they would set up uh, an image to remind, like they would put a statue up in a faraway land to remind people, this is the king, this is uh, the guy in charge, you better live like he wants you to live. And that's originally what we were supposed to be. That's part of why we were made in the image of of God is people were supposed to be able to look at human beings and say, if you want to know what God is like, what his reign is like, what his rule is like, look at this human being. 
and they'll show you what God is, is like. The, the problem, though, is, is what we've done is we've taken that incredible stewardship God gave us to represent his reign and rule on this earth, and we've used it instead to create societies again and again and again that don't represent the reign and rule that he would want us to represent. And instead of being people who create societies that value every human life equally, we've done the opposite. And so what does, what does God do? He sends Jesus, right? He sends Jesus to do and to show what God is like. And, and what does Jesus what does Jesus do? I mean, the first thing he does, he condemns evil. And I, what I don't want you to hear me suggest in that we, we sh- you know, in, in refusing to hold other people in contempt is not to say there aren't ideas that are evil and that should be held in contempt. Absolutely there are. And Jesus did that. I mean, Jesus did not hold back. When he saw the evil at work in his own day, he spoke truthfully about that. I'm not saying that we hold back at all in that respect. And yet Jesus matched this truth-telling fire with a willingness to die for his enemies. And unless you in your own soul can speak truth and power right alongside being willing to die for the people with whom you disagree, we, we need to be careful about transgressing into that language, of spe- into that space of speaking truth, because Jesus did both, right? He didn't, just, he didn't just speak truth and fire. He died for his enemies alongside speaking truth for enemies. And in that, he represents the reign of God, that Jesus himself, his last two acts on earth, the first are washing his disciples' feet, Right? Was like in that day, there wasn't sanitation. Streets were nasty. Like you didn't wear socks. You had sandals. Feet were, I mean, feet are disgusting today, but like it was, it was way more disgusting back then. And Jesus, what he does is he grabs his basin in this towel. He washes his disciples' feet like they're the kings. Like they're the sons of God or daughters of God. And the second thing that Jesus does is he goes to a cross and dies. He dies for us to restore our image. What is a human being worth? What are you worth? What am I worth? I mean, Jesus shows us. He gets on a cross. He gives his own life for us. He washes our feet to remind us of our royalty, to remind us we've traded our royalty, our position as children of God, to do evil, for evil. And so he serves us. He reminds us. He acts out the reality that we are his kings and queens, his representatives on this earth to restore us, to make right what is wrong in us. And he dies for us to recreate the image of God that we have lost by representing our own rule, our own reign, our own ideas, instead of the God of the universe. So what does the world say to you that you are worth right now? Now, what does God say you are worth to him? I mean, his own son, right? And who in your life do you you speak of or treat as less than the royal king and queen that they are made in God's image and likeness, his child? And church, what does God want to do with us tomorrow? As his recreated people in his own image going out into this world, what does he want us to be? Let's pray. Father God, these these words from Genesis 1 are aggressively countercultural to every human society, every worldview that's not rooted in Genesis 1. They are confrontational words to my own heart, what my own heart thinks. 
And so I, just, I begin in a place of, God, would you forgive me for every moment in my own life when I've thought in my heart of another human being, you fool. For any time I've, I've not valued human dignity and value in life, every time I haven't believed fully the image of God in everyone around me. And God, we lament and forgive us for participating in a culture that does not value every human life. And God, the only way back is for each of us to have that image restored in us, for each of us to leave this place believing with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, not just that you are our God and you love us, but that you have made us as your kings and your queens, your royalty to represent you on this earth, this good kingdom, this new way of living. God, would you fill our hearts with belief in our own identity and value tied only to Genesis 1 and nothing else? Spirit of God, do that for us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.